1: Cramer, welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Cramerica, coming to you from San Francisco, the epicenter of the hardest-hit portion of the stock market today. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Is this the new normal? Today was the worst day for the averages since December 24th, with the Dow plunging 617 points. The S&P plummeting 2.41% and the NASDAQ nosediving 3.41%. Oh, my. Sell, sell, sell. Well, of course, after the Chinese retaliated from the President Trump's tariff hikes from last Friday... So we have to ask, is this how the market reacts to an escalation in the trade war? I mean, you better strap yourself in because I expect to see tariffs on the other $300 billion worth of merchandise that we import from China. President Trump doesn't care about doing business with the People's Republic. And I think he's going to punish anyone who tries until they agree to a deal, which probably will happen down the road. Nothing soon. Now, it's an astonishing proposition when you think about it. China's a huge trading partner, but the president believes the trade war hurts them more than it hurts us. And in his view, the damage will be contained to a small number of companies. Like in the Dow, it'll be ABC, Apple, Boeing, Caterpillar. There's just one problem. The stock market, it doesn't buy it. Investors believe the carnage will be immense, and they went out so badly that they were willing to sell pretty much everything other than utilities and a handful of super-defensive consumer products companies. I mean, think Campbell's Soup and, I don't know, Hershey's. So how worried should we be? History says you may want to be afraid. We know that gigantic tariffs impede trade, and impeded trade means less business, and less business means lower earnings, which therefore means lower stock prices. Get that litany? But you know what? That analysis is missing something. Most companies won't see their earnings hurt here. That's why I think it's premature to bail on the whole market. You're going to hear a lot of people talk about how the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act exacerbated the Great Depression. Some will say it caused the Great Depression. But Smoot-Hawley went into law eight months after the 1929 stock market crash. So I don't know if that's such a good analysis about what we should be scared of. The thing is, Most investors don't seem to realize that our trade war with China doesn't have much in common with past trade wars. Why? Because we simply don't sell that much stuff to the Chinese. Why? Because they won't let us. That's why when China unveiled the retaliation targets... I found the list pretty pathetic, frankly. Trump raised tariffs on $200 billion of Chinese exports. They hit back on $60 billion of U.S. exports. Seems a little one-sided, doesn't it? Just listen to this list. I'm not, this is what's on the list. Beans, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, carrots, cauliflower, broccoli. So far, these are all the things that our moms made us eat that we didn't like. Cucumbers, potatoes, sweet potatoes, rabbit meat. Frog legs! Almonds, cashews, apples, pineapples, dates, figs, mandarin oranges, mandarin! Hazelnuts, pears, macadamia nuts, whey, as in curds and whey, although curds weren't on the list. Eggs, butter, pasta, rice, corn, eels! Ooh, slippery. Trout, chicken, turkey, peanuts, cake, beer, wine, wheat. It's really all agriculture except for televisions? DVRs, cameras, gloves. China's also threatening to cut off our liquefied natural gas exports. Given the vast proponents of these goods are made by farmers. And the president's already said he'll bail them out if they need it. These goods are all commodities, though, so they'll probably just flow somewhere else. I know soybeans went down in price. All right. Either way, you don't need to worry about agriculture, as it's the most heavily subsidized industry in America. We treat our farmers like China treats its manufacturers. We prop them up! And protect them against foreign competition. Now, a couple of these items are, I don't know, downright funny. TVRs? TVs? DVRs? DVRs? Cameras? Gloves? Come on! Our manufacturing base for that stuff was wiped out ages ago. China, in particular, destroyed the American glove industry. Ain't these people ever read American Pastoral? Liquefied natural gas. Uh, that's like Boeing's planes. I mean, get in line. There's so much worldwide demand for natural gas that somebody else will happily take those contracts, not that there's any to be contracted for right now. When we spoke with Sri Suki, the father of the LNG industry, and Tom Farrell, Dominion Energy, who's a big exporter, they both told us the same thing. There should be no additional supply to be had for years and years. China can't touch those guys. So where does this put us? On the one hand, the president's whole worldview, the one that says there will be nobody left in China to do business with, very bad for China, very good for the U.S., wow, that's thoughtful. Well, that terrifies most investors. Wall Street wants trade with China, and the last thing it wants is for the second largest economy on earth to go into recession, something that could spread to their other trading partners. Of course, the president isn't telling companies they need to make everything here. He just wants them to move away from China. Later tonight, we're talking to Laura Albert. She's the CEO of Williams-Sonoma. She's been ahead of the curve here. She's moving her sourcing to other countries to get ahead of these tariff hikes, including the United States. She's making upholstery in Tupelo, Mississippi, since she saw this coming. 500 jobs. Now, it gets worse for the Chinese. Trump's debating whether to slap 25% tariffs on the $300 billion worth of the stuff that we also import from the PRC that hasn't been hit yet. At that point, China will be out of American exports to tax. But they've threatened to start selling their hoard of more than a trillion dollars in U.S. treasuries. Hold it just a second. Say, go right ahead. With treasury yields plummeting here, you could price hundreds of billions of dollars of treasuries right now. Arguably, they'd be doing us a favor. So, can you start buying stocks yet? Now, last week I told you that Tuesday would be the moment to start doing some buying because I figured this Chinese retaliation would scare people today and only the recession stocks would win. That's the stuff like do I have any Hershey's left or any Campbell's? That's eh, all right. Uh, But by the end of tomorrow's session, investors probably will start picking among the rubble, targeting well-run domestic names like the managed care stocks, the insurance stocks, the telcos, and, of course, some techs. Of course, there are other issues. Most of the upcoming wave of IPOs will be curbed by the collapse of the Uber deal. Short term, that's a bummer. Long term, it's fantastic because the last thing we need right now is more stock supply. There are semiconductor stocks that will be hurt. And you have to wait before you pull the trigger with these because we don't know how badly their Apple business will be damaged. We don't know if the Chinese will target individual companies like Starbucks or Nike with boycotts. Uh, Hey, and and maybe deer reports this week, that could be a tough one, though. But let's go back to epicenter of trade war, Apple. It was a one-two punch here today. I think they gave me that one. Because first, the Supreme Court is allowing a lawsuit against Apple for inflated app prices, if they're really inflated. A lot of them are free anyway. The argument is that they've got a monopoly on the app store. That doesn't mean the plaintiffs will prevail, but it's a risk, albeit, I think, a small one. Second, Apple could obviously feel some pain if the Chinese go for a boycott against its products. Although, given that they make so much of their stuff in China, that would be like cutting off your nose to spite your face. But who knows, an iPhone boycott would be a lot more effective than tariffs on trowel, eels, or, of course, American-made pasta. The bottom line, today the market turned against everything but the soft goods stocks, and then only a handful of those. That kind of move tends to only last for three days, and this was day two. Tomorrow, day three, by the end of the day, the buyers usually start circling back to stocks with no Chinese exposure. Think Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Alphabet now, God, what well, used to be Google. So get ready. It's been a wild ride, but we're almost in oversold territory, and there's not much more China can do to hurt our economy, even as it sure can hurt the stock market, because their moves inspire panic like no other country's business, Hey, why don't we go to Josh in California, please? Josh. Hey, Jim. How are you? Where are you? All right, this isn't Josh uh, this uh, isn't Josh Lipton from the San Francisco Bureau, is it? That's never mind. Okay. Go ahead, Josh. Okay. Uh, yes, Jim. What are your thoughts on this? On which one? ExxonMobil. Kind of broke up there. China. Oh, ExxonMobil? No. Exxon Exxon Mogul's got a good yield, but we like Chevron more, and we thought Chevron was savvy to take the billion-dollar breakup fee and move on from the deal to buy Anadarko. How about we go to Elaine in Florida? Elaine. Elaine? Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Hello, Elaine. It's Jim. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm a long-time pensioner with
2: U.S. Steel, and I'm wondering okay. if they're in a position to function pro-
1: produ- productively long-term. Um, I think the long-term is tough. You know, their balance sheet's not that good. Elaine, I hate to see you in a situation. I know you're a longtime pensioner of it, but Nucor's the only company left in the steel industry of the large ones, the integrated, that has a good balance sheet. That's the one. All right. It was a day of agony. No ecstasy. Brace yourself for a wild ride. But you know what? I think the market should stop sweating the program. By Thursday, I don't know. I mean, we'll still know this stuff, but it's going to be in our rear view window. All right. You know, like the mirror. On that money today. Today's sell-up was tough. But I've got your back, Cray America. I'm focused on the drop. The companies at the center of it all. I'm talking to Twitter and Workday after the worst day for tech in months. And my exclusive is one of the, other, the only companies that really did anticipate the 25% tariff. Yes, that is Williams-Sonoma. I suggest you stay with Kramer.
0: Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps.
1: There's an old saying, victory has a thousand fathers, but defeat is an orphan. Well, today's question defeat came from your typical two-parent household. The escalating trade war with China coupled with the fiasco that was Friday's Uber IPO. Today, I want to walk you through this anatomy of this defeat. You might think this sounds a little ridiculous. I mean, how could one stock have as much impact as China ratcheting up tariffs on $60 billion worth of American exports? Simple. Whenever there's a a huge, highly visible initial public offering that implodes, it discredits the entire asset class. And that's exactly what happened after the failed uh, Facebook IPO in 2012. It's happening again right now. Everybody who invested in the Uber deal has already gotten burned, and that makes the whole market seem more treacherous than maybe it is. So who's to blame for Uber? First and foremost, the company itself. Uber's timing couldn't have been more terrible. You're supposed to come public when your business is red hot, but Uber waited too long. The ride-sharing company's growth has been slowing for a while now, and they just had another decelerating quarter, and that is just bad. It reminds me of the Facebook deal. If Remember, uh, Facebook came public right when smartphones were eviscerated. you remember it was just being eviscerated with a desktop-oriented business? They they had no mobile strategy whatsoever, and the business was doomed to fail until they got one? Which only happened after the stock had been cut in half. Uber's now in a similar position. With losses as far as the eye can see, the stock's in trouble until management figures out how to put the company on the path to profitability. Even worse, we've heard a lot of talk about competition and promotional pricing. Oh, no! In retrospect, the underwriters should have pushed back hard on this one, especially after the collapse of the Lyft deal. Unfortunately, it's not clear that the underwriters could push back. Uber had too many investors who had gotten in at ridiculous unicorn valuations, like Toyota, which had just plowed $500 million into the company at a $76 billion valuation last summer. But at that time, Uber had a much better growth story than it does now. So Morgan Stanley, the lead underwriter, had a problem. How can you value a company north of $76 billion if the fundamentals are deteriorated? It turns out you can't square that circle, which is why Uber's $82 billion IPO valuation, that's the $45 price, simply couldn't hold. I think that price was a compromise between management and Morgan Stanley, which bet that the public would thirst for shares in such a well-known company and put in a lot of market orders to buy stock at the opening. Now, in a well-run IPO, you do want to get a decent pop right out of the gate. That was impossible for Uber. Why? Because in order to sell all those shares at the $45 level, they had to get the public involved beforehand in the deal. And there wasn't enough demand otherwise. But once you let regular individual investors participate on this, that initial spike just can't happen. Normally, this process is heavily biased toward big institutions. Money managers get most of the shares in the actual deal. Then regular people bid up the stock in the aftermarket. However, at 45 bucks, most professionals weren't interested because they knew Uber was slowing, and it didn't hurt that the company came. Well, it, let's just say it—it it really helped that the public came just as Trump started his tariff increases to the next level, and that spread panic among potential buyers. That's why it was one of the reasons why it was just so hideous Friday morning. Still, that wouldn't have mattered if the IPO had been priced correctly. The underwriters should have found a level where there was a lot of institutional demand. That would have upset Uber's more recent investors, but at least people who participated in the deal on Friday wouldn't have gotten burned so badly. When we get the $45 opening price talk, you know, just at that very moment, I was able to see and talk to a number of floor brokers. Now, they don't handle the big orders, uh, but they all told me that at these levels, the deal was finished as buyers turned to sellers instantly. When you hear that imbalance, there's no way that Morgan Stanley could stabilize whatever happens. You know what? Their only hope was to open it so low, like at 42 as they did, so that the sellers quickly get washed out and the stock turns around. And to be fair, that's, that's what they tried to do. The stock opened at 42 and then briefly walked up to 43 and change, but it couldn't get back to 45 as there was just too much stock for sale on a really ugly day. The result, the attempt to avoid a down round was like the appointment in Samara. Death was bound to find the buyers, and Uber got obliterated today, down nearly 11%. Frankly, they should have come public a year or two ago, when the growth was still strong. But even failing that, the IPO could have worked if they'd accepted a much lower price. Unfortunately, the process failed. That's right, the process. And that matters, not just to Uber, but because it tarnishes the entire market, especially all the recent unicorn IPOs that roared higher right out of the gate and are now getting obliterated, plus the ones that are maybe coming, I don't know. It's one more overhang we could really do without. Death's having a good laugh. Only Beyond Meat roared today. Hey, but you know what? I had an Impossible Burger at the Giants-Reds game yesterday in Oracle Park, and I'm I mean, is that really what you buy in a trade war? Are you kidding me? All right, much more mad money ahead. Today was tough, but we're going to get through it together, Kramerica. I'm talking tariffs with the CEOs of Williams-Sonoma and Workday. So stay with Kramer. It is time. It's time for a special West Coast edition of the Lightning Round on Bad Money coming at you from San Francisco. It's the heart of the hardest hit portion of the market. I know you need help on days like this, and I am here for you. That's why we take your calls. Rapid fire. You say in this stock, I tell you whether to buy, buy, buy or sell, sell, so sell, just with here. I don't know the calls or stock questions at that time. My staff professor to to the play. When you hear the sound... Then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Skid Time over the lightning round. Claimers has money. Let's talk with Michael in New jersey. Michael. Booyah, Jim. Michael here. I want you to take a All look right, at Village, Farm. take- Village Farms. Village Farms, that's a cannabis stock. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly a blue chip like Merck or Pfizer. Maybe we hold off for now. Okay, let's go to Richard in Massachusetts. Richard. <laughs> Hi uh, Richard, what's up? Um I, hi. hi Jim. I think your show is wonderful. Thank you, partner. A, you got it. I'm a long-term investor and I own SailPoint Technologies. The symbol is S-A-I-L. Oh, I know the company, and it's look, it's enterprise identity. I mean, which I, you know, I think of as Okta. Yeah, you know, I just went by the Okta building the other day. It's fabulous. We're gonna have to hold up on that one too. Wow, this is getting to be a bummer. I need to go to Jack in Texas. Jack! Greetings, Dr. Jack? Kramer from Austin, Texas. Oh, thank. You. Oh, well, thank you for making me a doctor. I'm in need of one. What's going on? I am seeking a company or master limits partnership with a high dividend or distribution to minimize okay. value volatility. Uh, knowing your concern over oil stocks, what is your opinion of a pipeline partnership by the name of Magellan Midstream Partners, symbol MMT? Okay. I know it well. We had Mr. Mears on. He's actually been one of the few energy people willing to come on air. My problem is this. the FERC actually made a ruling that was not so positive for them. We've got to get the government to deregulate so that Mr. Mears can make as much money as possible. 6.6% yield, but that group is morbid, and I don't want you in there. Those are some of the worst-acting stocks in the market. I am very sorry. Let's go to Brian in Nebraska. Brian! Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Yes, can you hear me? Okay. Oh, you sound better than ever. Yeah. Hey, Jim, my uh, stock is Becton Dickinson, BDX. Oh, finally. Finally one I can get behind because that's precisely the kind of stock that people are going to buy, say, maybe Wednesday because it has no economic exposure and it is just such a good company. And I like that last acquisition. Now we're going to Matthew in Maine. Matthew!
3: Hey, Kramer, Big
1: Lobster from Yarmouth, Maine. Man, I could use a lobster roll right about now. I'm going to send the staff out for one while I'm doing the show. What's going on? Last week, Fox Corp, ticker symbol FOXA, FoxA, released their first earning report, a beat of $2.75 right. $2. $2. Announced the gambling deal of SARS Group, $0.23 cents, uh, per share dividend. What's your thoughts on this Foxy stock? Uh, look, I, I think it's a very good stock. I think they put it up a really good quarter. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with holding on to that. I'm not going to, like, you know, jump up and down about it, but it is a good company. I do prefer Disney, just for the record, especially as Disney's coming down. I think we take another. I think we go to Craig in New York. Craig!
3: Puma Biotechnology, please.
1: Oh, man, that was just a that was a bad do. And I got to tell you, I agree with the market. You know, I thought that there was more to the drugs. Uh, They didn't have it. I think you're going to have to be very careful. I don't think that there's enough there to be able to own. I need to go to Mike in New York. Mike! Hey, Jim, how's it going, buddy? We appreciate everything you do. It's going very well. Very well. Great. So with an IPO last week and work involving cybersecurity, defense, and intelligence, do you consider Parsons Corporation, ticker PSN, a buy? I actually like it. Now we've got Cyber to report later this week. So so uh, if, that, if that goes up, this one's going to go up too. That's, that group did get hurt today. But that's what I would go with. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. Oh, wait a sec. It's, it's a tough day for the averages. I'm coming to you from ground zero of the drop. Do not miss my sit down with the leaders of Williams-Sonoma, Workday, and Twitter. And stay with Kramer.
3: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: Right now, everybody's freaking out about all the companies that are in the crosshairs of the trade war. But the best operators, well, they're already prepared for the worst. Take Williams-Sonoma, the high-end home goods chain that's widely seen as a big loser from Trump's new 25% tariff on Chinese-made furniture. While the stock's getting clobbered here, the fact is Williams-Sonoma was prepared for this. Last year, they got ready for higher tariffs by moving some of their sourcing away from China and finding aggressive ways to cut costs. They were predicting a 25% tariff for heaven's So what's next for the company? In its stock, which now yields an incredible 3.6%. Earlier today, I got a chance to sit down with Laura Albert, the responsible CEO of Williams Sonoma, and hear her plans for the future. Take a look. Laura, you've been ahead of everybody. You've got an amazing e-commerce site. It dovetails with retail. You even say it can be used where else aren't we everywhere. How did you know to put it together like this?
4: Um, you know, we've been in the business of direct to consumer since I started and before my time, because we had our catalog business, and because of that, we knew how to ship goods individually to a person. We also had this amazing house file and learned how to do lifestyle marketing to our consumers through the catalog format. So, of course, when internet came along, and we were actually called turtles to the race, uh, it was a pretty natural thing to do because we had the names and we had the supply chain in place.
1: And now you're going business to business. Why can that work for you? Because we like your furniture? What's going on?
4: Well, think about it. So, so many people, whether it's office space or arenas um, or hotels, are looking to make those public spaces more emotional, more residential. And they're looking for alternatives. And there's not really been anyone who's done that. So, we know that with our multiple brands, we can come in and create a, a, a environment that hasn't been done before.
1: Well, one of the things I think that is going to work in your favor is, is that you are hiring in America, which matters, because you saw a lot of things that were coming, including you were working with the 25% tariff foresight. Tell me about Tupelo and what it means. Well, it's a
4: great story. We actually opened our first Sutter Street manufacturing unit in North Carolina many years ago as we saw the opportunity to bring jobs back, but also to make great furniture for our customers. And the cost of the freight coming from Asia offsets the cost of the labor. And we did that. and It was very successful and it allows us to do more custom furniture faster. And then when we learned of the threat of the 25% tariffs, which by the way, we believed would happen.
1: Yes, and that is in, in we, print, and everyone else, many <laughs> others, were saying 10. Unfortunately,
4: that pessimism has come true, and we were we are more prepared. So, one of the things we did a lot of things, but one of the things we did was we looked at opening another unit in Tupelo, and then uh, bolstering up our other two West Coast and East Coast manufacturing units. And so, we're hiring. How many? 500 people. 500 people. I mean, we've got 140 right now in Tupelo. We need to hire more and we need to hire more on the coast as well.
1: So we should tell people that if they want a great job, right, yeah, Great Tupelo jobs. there's one available and upholstery.
4: It's great jobs. And also the other thing that may not be um, obvious is that we're making our furniture Green Guard certified. And we have the two... Um, units already completely certified and we're working on Tupelo. But GreenGuard is so important because we all know that off-gassing is a big deal in furniture. And so this prevents that from happening. Off-gassing,
1: you better maybe explain that. Not off-gassing. No, close Chem- to that.
4: Chemical off-gassing. So we're using all low VOC materials in our products and you have to go through a certification process. And we're excited and really proud that all the furniture made there is uh, green card certified.
1: Twenty-four sustainable companies. You're the 24th, but the only one in your business. Uh, I think you care about this passionately. Even if no one cared, you care, right?
4: <laughs> we have cared for a long time, and I think you travel the world and you see so many things, and you realize how important it is to take care of your workers. And you know at the end of the day, what matters? Impact. And we want to have a great impact on the world and make beautiful furniture that is not landfill, that doesn't hurt you, and that takes care of the communities that make the furniture.
1: Now, uh, you have announced that you're doing something big with Rent the Runway mm-hmm. on your conference. Well, I think people were surprised. Rent the Runway is rather new outfit. You've been around for a long time, but this melds well with your plan?
4: Yes, yeah, exciting. West Elm's doing a lot of innovative, innovative things, including Rent the Run- Runway. And um, I think it was quite progressive of our president, Alex Bellows, to see that opportunity and we're going to try it. And I believe there will be a big market. For, for that that you know new customer segment who doesn't necessarily want to buy forever, but wants quality stuff.
1: Absolutely. Now, one thing I, I'm trying to figure out as I listen to you is, how the hell did you know 25? No one else knew it. How did you see it? And is it because you went to China a lot, or you, you recognized that things were going to get tough between them?
4: How did you know? I think that... You're better off preparing for the worst, right? Right. What's that edge? That's what you say. You prepare you for the the best
1: and prepare for the worst. And
4: so we have a very sophisticated vertically integrated supply chain. We have a lot of people all over Asia. And so we have great relationships with our vendors and we start seeing it happen and we start moving product.
1: Moving what to Vietnam? To Vietnam, to
4: Indonesia, moving it to America. And then also renegotiating with our current Chinese manufacturers to reduce prices. So prices
1: are not with them. So your yes. prices are not going to go up beginning next week.
4: Well, there'll be selective price increases, as there always are. We've been very careful in studying where we should do that. But more importantly, we're reducing costs. So we're reducing costs, not just on the cost of goods by moving them, but also in other parts of our company.
1: Now, I do want to, uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you, because that was great for some very few people have. that. Second, I'd be remiss to not talk about rejuvenation, to not talk about Mark and Graham, the extension that you're doing, how important, and 500, you're talking about 500 million dollar brands that people don't know yet are going to be 500
4: million. You know, there, we have a lot of exciting growth engines, uh, number one being West Elm. Yes, you know, okay. West, and that's yeah.
1: double digit growth, so everybody should know that.
4: And West Elm is a powerhouse, and it is because of its global design power, sustainability, and value equation. Stores work. It's very unknown still on the internet. Believe it or not, we only have 20%. It's
1: really hard to believe how much runway there is. I
4: mean, people don't, only 20% of people recognize West Elm as a brand. So we have such opportunity to continue to introduce people to that brand. And that's just one example. As you said, we have all these other great new businesses to look forward to and to grow.
1: But one thing you care about passionately is your customer. So if an Amazon is doing knockoffs, Mm -hmm. you try to stop that as fast as possible to protect your customer. That's right. And where are we with that with that lawsuit?
4: Well, you know, we can't talk about the lawsuit okay, specifically. Fair I'll just say that we have always been very passionate about protecting our customer to make sure they're getting what they think they're getting, the quality that we deliver, and also um, the. It, you know that we are controlling the experience. Well,
1: I know that controlling experience means a great deal to you, and I know that there are many shoppers who love what you've done. That's Laura Alber. She is the CEO of Williams Sonoma, WSM, with a two-year growth level that's quite extraordinary. Thank you so Thank
4: much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: When the whole market rolls over like this, you always want to start searching for the stocks of high-quality companies that are being punished for all the wrong reasons. Companies that just reported terrific results, companies with no China exposure, companies that are a lot less connected to the failed Uber IPO than you might think. That's why I'm glad we're out here in San Francisco this week, because there are plenty of technology firms that fit the bill, even though their stocks are all going down. Companies like Twitter. Three weeks ago, the social media company reported a fantastic quarter, and the stock caught fire. Yet with the market getting clubbed here, the stocks pulled back hard, including nearly 5% decline today. Does that make sense to view this sell-off as a buying opportunity, or is this some sort of death knell? Let's take a closer look with Ned Siegel. Ned is the Twitter chief financial officer. Get a better sense of how the company's doing and where it is headed. Mr. Siegel, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me, Jim. Thanks for being in San Francisco. Okay, here's what I want you to do. We're in San Francisco all week. I want you to put yourself, if you possibly can, let's say it's Thursday. It's now been multiple days after the market fell apart. What do you say to people about whether Twitter should have been thrown away with the rest of it?
2: Well, first I'd start with our purpose. At Twitter we're trying to get the whole world to use the service because there are topics and events that people care about all over the world that they should come to find out about regardless of what's going on in the world. So the first is that's going to be our purpose regardless of what's happening in the economy. But the second is, if you think about digital advertising, for about 20 years, that market has grown by about 20% a year. Advertisers want to be able to measure their success even more in a downturn than they do in an upturn. And you can imagine that that secular shift towards digital advertising, that probably continues in any environment.
1: And it does seem like, even in the time we've known each other, I met Jack, you went from being, I don't know, maybe we should sample, to becoming a must-buy. Even when you're launching a new product, that's been something
2: consumer product companies have found out. That's right. Not just consumer product companies, but if you've got a movie, if you've got a new series on HBO, if you want to talk to your audience about uh, how you should name or, uh, a new product, Twitter is a great place to do that. So we talked to them about launching new products and services and we talk about connecting with what's happening. Because when you're on Twitter as a consumer, you're looking into an event or topic, and there are brands who want to be a part of that conversation.
1: Well, it's incredible. I'm glad you touched on all those points, because we had an instance last week. We had the CEO of Wendy's on, and he talked about democracy in action using Twitter and bringing back something that was treasured.
2: So Chance the Rapper (laughs) tweeted about the chicken strips that Wendy's took away, and Wendy's is a terrific... Example of how Twitter can be used we know because that. they're all over the platform all the time, talking to their customers, uh, talking to other advertisers or other brands. And in this case, there were two million tweets to bring back the chicken strips, and they're doing it.
1: Well, I mean, that's incredible. It, it, speaking of democracy in action, do you are you already gearing up for the presidential election in twenty twenty? I don't know how any of the candidates can get known in the Democratic Party unless they tweet.
2: Well, we're always thinking about elections because. Although there are presidential elections in the United States every four years, there are elections all over the world, all the time. And they're really important uh, for Twitter because people want to know what's happening in real time. They want to be a part of the conversation. They want to hear from the candidates, whether they're the ones with whom they agree or the ones on the other side of the aisle. And so we're working hard to make sure people can trust the information, that you can tell who the candidate is. We even have at ads.twitter.com, you can go and see who's paying for ads around a campaign, exactly how much they paid, what audience they're after. That transparency is a really important part of delivering during an election
1: for us. All right, well, then I'm going to ask you a tough question about the election. Uh, If someone were to say that I was crying Jim or sleepy, creepy Jim, okay, on my feed, I would complain to you. And you guys have been most responsive. But President Trump, who is really kind of... uh, really speaking to the people via Twitter. He's saying crying Chuck and sleepy, creepy uh, uh, Joe Biden. It, it, should he be allowed to do that?
2: Look, on Twitter, we want people to be able to trust the information that they see. We want them to be comfortable being a part of the conversation. And that it, it is going to vary how that plays out in different conversations. is that rude? Well, we might think that something that somebody says around the Sixers-Raptors game, where there were uh, a million tweets yesterday, where there were 40,000 tweets in the minute after Kawhi hit the shot. You might agree or disagree with one of the people, uh, but having a conversation that everybody can be a part of, where everybody can share their point of view, that's what Twitter's all about.
1: I think that's a fair answer, even though you brought up something that is probably going to wreck most of my experience out here. All right, let, let's talk about uh, what we call now these new fronts, the new We're, fronts, yeah. I mean, I know upfronts. What's a new front?
2: New fronts are the opportunity that we have and other companies have to share all the great content that's going to be on our service over the coming year so that advertisers can learn about it and figure out what they want to match up with so that they can launch their new products and services and connect with what's happening. We announced a ton of of partnerships many of them are extensions of work that we've done in the past. Can you talk
1: about some of the big brand names? Sure,
2: well uh, let me tell you about some of the content first. So we've worked with sports uh, leagues for many years uh, but we're always looking to innovate what we do with them. For the Women's World Cup we're going to show every goal As a highlight right after it happens, for Major League Baseball, you can now vote on what player you want to see their at-bats for live on Twitter uh, uh, that evening. So you get to vote and then you get to watch it. Uh, for football, exciting. we've got these phenomenal highlights. There are some great news programming uh, that we've got as well. And the news programming on Twitter isn't 30 and 60 minutes long. These are bite-sized right. pieces because the people that's create talking about the news, they want to be a part of the conversation about the news that's already happening on Twitter.
1: Okay, so what, how do you think the news about China plays out? And is there really any impact, again, wait, putting out that three-day plan to your company because of problems between our country and China?
2: Well, a trade war could affect all companies in all kinds of different ways, whether it's access to services or how things play out around the talent that we're trying to attract and retain at our company. Uh, we've had a lot of success in China over the last few years and we think it will continue where we help Chinese brands advertise outside of China now it's typically in Asia or in other parts of the world where if you are a brand that makes a ride-sharing service or a game or a washing machine or a phone and you're Chinese you want to let people in another part of the world know about your product or service the same way as U.S. or European advertisers do. That's been a great business for us.
1: Gotcha. The last thing I want to leave you with, and I'm glad you clarify the China thing, but is I want to say how proud many of us who are, I have a million followers, that you are 38%. percent you have. Yes, exactly. I'm watching. Jeez, good stuff. That you have really done 38% of the Bad ones of the mean or the bad is found flagged by you. You're actually taking things down, even as it could help you in revenue short term if you left them in.
2: So, we're now uh, 38% of the abusive tweets that we flag are flagged through machine learning as opposed to by a human. Uh, And I'm not sure what the right mix is over time, but the fact that that's 38% up from zero a while back means that we're making real progress in leading with technology and how we make sure that Twitter's a healthy place for people to be a part of the conversation and to trust the information that they
1: see. And freedom of speech China maybe one day?
2: We'll figure out that when when we get there. But right now, we feel like we've got so much opportunity getting people, not just in the United States, but all
1: over the world, to use the service. Well, I want to thank you so much, Ned. You've really been a, it's been a great run since you've got there. The business has been like this, and I think it's going to continue. That's Ned Sequences the CFO. Thanks, Jim. something everybody is thinking about. Is it too soon to start picking at, say, the cloud kings that got obliterated today, along with the rest of the market? I mean, some of these companies have little to do with the trade war or the busted Uber IPO. Yet, at least today, investors didn't seem to care. Take Workday, the cloud-based software company that helps businesses automate all sorts of back-office jobs, like uh, human resources, payroll, financial management, allowing its clients to save a lot of money. After a colossal multi-year run, Workday spent the past couple of months trading sideways, trading sideways. And today, of course, the stock got pummeled, down 4.6%. But the company's got a terrific track record. And the last quarter reported in late February, it was excellent. But do not take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Anil Bushri. He's the co-founder and CEO of Workday to learn more about his company's prospects. Mr. Bushri, welcome back to Mad Money.
3: It's good to be with you, Jim.
1: Uh, we are trying to come up with a new theory here. We're pretending it's Thursday because we're going to go back to the companies that wouldn't be hurt by a China trade issue. You had a spectacular quarter with amazing growth. Give me the impact of what trade talks mean versus where your business is.
3: You know, we, we don't have a presence in China. So as we think about our core market, there are multinationals across the globe. So I don't think we'll feel a direct impact from the from the trade talks. With the one caveat that some of our largest US and European multinationals have exposure to China and when times get tough, they tend to slow some of their investments, but well, we haven't seen that.
1: I think I'm glad you mentioned that because one of your names that you got, and you've got so many logos, you just got Caterpillar for Human Capital Management. Now, that is a company that's very involved with China, but they'll still do a lot of business work today if they just joined you, right?
3: I hope so. It's a great company, and uh, they're very focused on an HR transformation and being a better place to work and more engaged with their employees. So They were a perfect customer, and I've got a huge amount of respect for that company over many many years. Now uh,
1: it is you know an iconic American company. Why does an iconic American company have to turn to Workday? You would think that they had things worked out. They didn't need you.
3: Well, I think they were off, they were running our previous system from Peoplesoft, oh, geez, which was, was good twenty years ago, and uh, that was
1: subsequently acquired.
3: Yes, right. uh, by Oracle. Uh, you know, as as you know, technology moves really rapidly. Yes. The shift to the cloud has happened even faster than I thought it would happen. And companies are embracing the cloud, and in many cases, the vendors that are providing the best solutions are the new vendors: Salesforce, Workday, ServiceNow, and you know some of the others like Twilio, and I love Zoom as well. It's another one of my companies, one of my favorite companies. In Every terms one of, of those companies
1: doing. has been red hot, and I, I, all of them do praise you when I speak to them. So that's a, a great credit to what you've done. Uh, another. Uh, county has uh, wanted to praise you. John Brobman, who's the president of Bucknell, told me to tell you that you don't know how good Workday is when it comes to colleges. My wife's on the board, too. Were, and she said, look, uh, one of the things they can do is make the best possible decisions on everything from campaigns to, to budgets, which I know they care tremendously about. How did you get involved with this with this college uh, method? Because, boy, it's been great
3: for you. Well, that's, that's great to hear. Uh, we love Bucknell. I really attribute what we're doing in higher ed uh, to my co-founder, Dave Duffield. He has a lot of passion for this market. He did at PeopleSoft. He actually did at companies previous to PeopleSoft, and he brought that passion to Workday. And so early on, we tailored our HR and financial products for higher education. Uh, and more recently, we're actually building a student system that manages the full student life cycle uh, for higher education institutions. And you know, we think it's, it's actually an underserved market that is very comfortable with new technology, so it's been a great market for us. All
1: right. Now, uh, in terms of where your company is, we always talk with Mark Benioff. He was like, "Okay, I'm going to get to 10 billion one day," and he got there. You have set that goal out. How close are you?
3: Well, I set that out internally, but somehow, <laughs>
1: well, some yes, come on, then, I have people within work uh, that you think they don't talk
3: about it to me. I, I think we can get. you got, you got <laughs> sources everywhere, don't you? <laughs> I think we can get there organically. You do, uh, but I, but I think we might do one or two more meaningful acquisitions like adaptive. It's got to be a perfect well, I was fit.
1: I asked you adaptive has helped so much So in this It's fantastic. Category.
3: Fantastic. First of all, it starts with a great team and a great leader in Tom Bogan. But that really mm-hmm. rounded out our our strategy for planning, execution analysis. We really needed that strong planning engine. And I can see a couple others, not many, that could right. that could help us, but for the most part I think you'll see us grow organically and I I think the markets we're in, HR, financials, analytics, planning, it's more than enough market to get us that $10 billion And a lot number. of it has
1: to be more revenue per customer you're, yep, you're doing. absolutely. They well, have to
3: buy more into our platform rather than just one product line.
1: Now, uh, one one last thing. I'm trying to figure out what everybody's doing. This is like I felt I earned the right to it. What are, everyone's doing socially. You talk about your mother and father and how important they are, but you have a foundation that's really extraordinary with fantastic people on it, including an HOF or Steve Young. Tell us what they do.
3: Well. Right before we went public, I would, I'd give Mark Benioff credit. He said, hey, set up the up the 111 approach. Put a bunch of stock in the foundation before you go public. And then we, we were planning on doing something like that, but, but Mark really was a great catalyst. Set up the foundation, and the foundation includes Steve Young as, as on the board, Steve Young, George Tennant, former director of the CIA, uh, Tony La Russa, and then some close friends in the San Francisco business world. And they help us give away money to uh, to the right organizations that are generally helping people advance their careers, whether it's underprivileged youth, whether it's the military folks getting back into the workforce. More recently, it's been about moms re, uh, re-engaging with the workforce, so we're really trying to help people that want to be in the workforce who maybe didn't have the right breaks up front.
1: Well, you're doing the right thing. You're a good son. How about that? Can uh, I call you that?
3: Good All parenting.
1: Right. All right. That's Anil Bush. He's the Workday CEO and co-founder on his way to $10 billion. No end of spending. Still doing business despite what happened to the market. Thank you. Thank you. Tough day. As always, we'll get through this together. like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer in San Francisco, and I will see you tomorrow.